Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. This is episode 35. Today's story is a novel called Other People's Things by Carrie Ann King. Carrie writes under a couple different names. For me, this writing under more than one name is also reflected in her writing style. Her storytelling has multiple perspectives. You'll hear her explain how she struggles with genre categories, how she finds herself focusing instead on her characters just becoming more fully themselves. We start out talking about how the unusual concept behind other people's things came to her. It was like her ideas were auditioning for her on stage. This idea showed up, and she knew it deserved a spotlight. It felt so inspired. The, the whole book just felt inspired to me. So it's one of those, sometimes something comes to you and you're not quite sure why or where, and then you decide whether you're going to engage with it. And I knew as soon as it showed up, there was no need, no need for any other parts to audition. We were definitely go. So for me, I was trying to explain to one of my friends why this was just like such a treasure. This book excited me so much and I enjoyed it so much. And I was trying to explain it. And I was like, well, it's a story about lost and found, but it's also, there's a PI so that it's also got some mystery in it. Oh, and it's about healing childhood traumas. So I, I felt like this book was many different things. And I wondered how you, for you, how do you describe it? Like what category do you put this story in? (laughs) Oh, that's a really good, um, that's a really good question. I would call it probably psychological drama with family elements and no I wouldn't I you know honestly I don't here's here's the thing I read wildly wildly and widely eclectically um and when I go to write it's very often the same thing I struggle with genre I'm always crossing genre lines because I love to read a very vast variety of books and the ones that I love the most tend to do that they're kind of a little bit of this and that. So this book pulls in the things that I most love. There is, uh, there is mystery, there's romance, there's a little bit of magic, there's family drama, there's my main theme in whatever I write, uh, really seriously across the board, whether I'm writing uh, mystery or paranormal or fantasy or my family dramas, I always have a theme of a character kind of becoming more fully themselves. Whether it's the main character or one of the minor characters, there's always that growth arc. That's my favorite arc. Somebody who doesn't know what they're capable of or what their power is or who they're meant to be in this world, finding their way to that. So that was the main theme of other people's Mm -hmm. things. Everything else just kind of fit with that. And that was for not just my main character, but for her PI uh, friend, Hawk, and for for Andrea, who is a woman in yes. the story that she meets, they all have that 
arc yes. of self-discovery, self-becoming. That's fantastic. Uh, that's a fantastic description. There's a line that Hawk says, and Hawk is the PI. She's, he becomes sort of the love interest in the story. He tells her, maybe you're a catalyst. Um, what you do sparks change. And I really liked that, that thought about us as people being catalysts. And I wonder, do you think we all are? Do you think everybody is potentially a catalyst? I honestly, yes, I do. I do think that I should give credit for that idea, actually, because that came to me via a counselor, a psychologist that I was seeing a grief, uh, a grief counselor, uh, after my first husband died, and I was seeing this awesome psychologist, I adored this man, he had these great insights, he was very irreverent. And one day I was upset about something. Actually, I have a really strong personality. And I and I said something to him about, you know, I'm I'm upset because I think I hurt this person or whatever. And he said, you're a strong person. You're going to hurt people. Get over it. And then he said, you know, really, you're a catalyst. And he said, any good, because I was in a counseling program at the time to become a counselor, he said, any good counselor is a catalyst. That's really what you are. You are there to spark the other person into greater discovery of themselves and who they are and where they're going on their journey. So I have really embraced that at the time. And have, I remind myself of that frequently as I'm going along. If I'm not happy about something that I've done, I'm like, well, I'm sorry if I hurt anybody. And I am, I truly am a very soft hearted soul here. But at the same time, I'm a catalyst. So maybe I've sparked something that will be good in the end. I don't know. I can't see that. So I let my characters do that too. In the very beginning, we're going to listen to a scene. We're going to listen to that first chapter. And we find out that this main character, Nickel, has a desire, an urge. A compulsion. Move, a compulsion. Okay, yeah. we can call it the compulsion. To move things that don't belong to her. She picks things up from one place and delivers them someplace else. So she's a relocator. So tell me a little bit about, you actually had a name for it. Oh, yes, the object relocation program. So yeah, I, I'm not I don't remember where that came from either. So Nicole, she just yeah, she has a problem. She is compelled to move things. They're in the wrong place. She knows they're in the wrong place. She cannot rest until they have been moved to the place where the universe apparently wants them to be, which gets her in all kinds of trouble. Yeah, and that you just said it perfectly, that the universe wants them to be someplace else. So she's not driven by some personal agenda, something larger than her. And you even um, in the story, there's a couple places in italic where you you give reference to the fates. Yeah. So I know that's a reference to Greek mythology. So I went back and looked up the, the whispers of fate. And there's three sisters. The fates are three sisters. And they are they rule over destiny. Yeah. And they weave the threads of fate. And I really think this is a very interwoven story. This is a very interconnected story because we're not just learning about Nickel or Hawk, but you have another woman who is uh, also lost and missing something. Yeah. You're dealing with loss and missing things and relocating. She kind of is constantly relocating herself yeah. in her life. And so um, that idea of, of interwoven or weaving is to me a real theme in this in this book. That, that probably is another theme that as I think of it, I use a lot. It's one of my favorite themes. 
One of my favorite fantasy books is called the Fionnivore Tapestry. It's a trilogy, actually. Mm. And oh. the, the whole idea of that is, again, that there's a fate who's weaving the story. And there's, there's a moment like the weaver pauses and waits and then incorporates this new thread into the tapestry, which just gives me chills when I think about it. So I've woven that kind of thing into other books. Uh, yeah. Same sort of thing that these people need each other, that there is power around them of some invisible kind that is leading them together, that there is a purpose behind Nichols' gift. And when she moves things, things happen that yeah. resolve old injuries or bring people together or, you know, various things do happen when she moves objects. I think everyone in their lives has a moment where there's something unexplainable. People call it serendipity or coincidence, but it's an unexplainable thing. And it's nice to imagine something weaving things together. There's something peaceful about thinking, well, that was meant to be. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I love the word synchronicity. That's that's my favorite one. And that really just means things coming together in a, you know, in a synchronous way. And so I that makes me happy. It's one of my favorite things. And I love when I can make it happen in a book. Is there anything serendipitous about your particular storytelling? Do you think there was a moment where you were like, oh, this is the path I'm supposed to take? Well, you know, where a coincidence happened and you were like, I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. Oh, you know, it happens all the time. And um, yeah, there there were way back moments where I knew it was what I was going to do. But I really, honestly, I clearly do very clearly remember a moment I would have been 20, probably, maybe, and I was taking a walk. And I do remember there was this very dark sky. And then there were seagulls that came out and the sun was shining on them and they were silver. And there was one, you know, sometimes when you're walking, you get that moment of, the angels sing. And I had this thought in my head is like, you know, I'm going to go into dark places and write stories that come from the darkness, but have hope and healing. And I way back then, and there was years after that, that I actually wrote my first novel and got published. But I still remember that clear as wow. clear. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? And then my yeah. whole publishing career has been one little moment like that after another. I can I have a whole trail of them that I was just thinking about this morning, actually, about how I got where I am. Yes, I've tried to explain that to my children who are young adults now that you kind of look backwards and you go, oh, if I hadn't crossed paths with that person, all of these other things on this path would never have happened. So it's good as you're moving forward to be aware of the connections you're making, you know, and the power of each one. Right. And yeah. Absolutely. I, people. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of uh, Robert Frost's poem, the, the road not taken. I've always loved that. You know, I took the road less traveled by and that has made all the difference. I've come to believe that it wouldn't matter which road that person had taken in the, in the woods. Um, yeah. They still would have had a wonderful journey, but it would have been a different journey. And so every time you have an encounter, everybody you meet, every decision you make does take you down a different path. I agree. I think there's something really beautiful about that particular Robert Frost poem. I've had moments where those words come to me even. his. I think he captures how you feel in nature sometimes yeah. just perfectly yeah profoundly right Mm -hmm. yeah um oh i know i wanted to ask you about there are a couple tattoos in this book i loved the one at the beginning 
Nickel and a childhood friend who was a foster kid, they both have star tattoos that match, right? Let's say, may the stars align. Um, there's also a tattoo that she has that's a reference to an Alfred Lord Tennyson yeah. poem, right? The curse has come upon me. And Hawk has a tattoo. So do you have any tattoos? I do not. <laughs> I, I think they're fascinating, though. I, I, they tell a story. And yes. you know, everybody who gets one has usually some kind of reason i mean yeah there's the drunk tattoos that don't necessarily mean anything but <laughs> anybody who's put any thought into the tattoos that they get that says something profound about where they were at the time who they are as a person and and i am always very fascinated by that i every now and then think maybe i should get one but i've not been moved to do so <laughs> yes Yes, I wondered, I think that's, it's so funny, I don't have any either, but it's partly because I place so much weight on it, that I think it really is, that it says something about you. And so it's hard for me to figure out what, what do I want to say about me forever, right? right. Like it's always going to be saying that about me. Maybe it'll be a Robert Frost poem, who knows? It would likely be words, not images, I think, knowing me. Okay, so... This is a good place in our meandering conversation to pause and listen to some of Nickel's story. This is at the beginning of the book. Nickel is working with her sister who has a house cleaning business. You'll hear Nickel succumb to one of her object relocation compulsions. It involves a book. After you listen to the scene, Carrie is going to share why she chose a book as the object in this story. So, this is from Other People's Things, written by Carrie Ann King, narrated by award-winning American actress Terry Clark Linden, who also serves on the SAG-AFTRA board, which is the union for narrators, actors, artists, and media professionals. Terry was produced on this audiobook by Brilliance Audio. Nickel? Roberta's voice holds a warning. Leave your backpack in the car. But you get toilet duty. Scrub the bathrooms and the kitchen floor. And I will check your pockets before we leave. Are we clear? Yes, ma'am. I salute her, slamming the door harder than necessary. Gratitude for this chance to earn a living has not quite quashed my inner rebel, or my annoyance that she still talks to me as if I'm a child. Better than jail, I remind myself. Also, I owe Roberta both of my kidneys and my immortal soul. As the owner of Sunnyside Up Cleaning Services, she has taken a huge risk in hiring me, since she has every reason to believe that I'm an incorrigible kleptomaniac. But she's also not stupid, and she's not about to set me loose dusting curios. I'm unlikely to try to stuff a toilet brush or a mop into my back pocket. Slipping and sliding in the snow, I wrestle the vacuum cleaner and a bucket full of rags and cleaning solutions out of the hatch, leaving Rob to manage her clipboard, a mop, and a duster. Snow cakes between the tops of my sneakers and my socks as I half-wade, half-skate to the porch, like some ludicrous cross between a clown and an ice dancer. Roberta, her feet snug and warm in boots with serious grips on the soles, has the door unlocked by the time I join her on the porch. 
Our eyes meet, and my irritation evaporates. Roberta carries a lot of responsibilities on her shoulders, and it's beginning to show. Her hair, short for convenience rather than style, is more gray than brown. There's a permanent furrow in her forehead and lines around her eyes. Her face is kind enough, but clearly shows that her life has been mostly hard work and worry, with little time for fun. By the time she was twelve, she was babysitting three younger siblings and helping mom with meals and housework. Now she runs a busy cleaning business while also managing two teenagers and a husband. If I were any other new employee, she'd probably have pawned me and my orientation off on somebody else and would be sitting in a warm office right now drinking coffee and taking care of the books. But I am not to be trusted, and she and I both know it. I swear to myself in that moment that I will not remove any object from this house or the house of any other client, no matter what I see or feel or how strong the temptation. But the instant I cross the threshold, I realize with crystal clarity what a bad idea it is for me to work for a cleaning service. This house is a landmine. Every flat surface is covered with stuff, figurines, magazines, odds and ends of this and that. Roberta's voice, giving me instructions, drifts farther and farther away. My heart thuds against my ribs. My mouth goes dry. I discipline myself to take three slow, deep breaths, an act of faith that the long line of counselors who have advocated this technique might actually know what they're talking about. Other than a sneeze induced by a floral air freshener, the results are inconclusive, but at least I haven't gone into a full-on panic attack. Roberta, who knows about my weird compulsion, even though she doesn't begin to understand it, sighs. Please just get to work. We don't have time for your nonsense. From the relative safety of the doormat, I scope out what I can see of the house. Everything looks reassuringly normal. No twisting or bending or shimmering of the light. No random objects demanding to be picked up and moved. But I know from experience that books are one of the worst offenders, and they are everywhere. Come look at this first. Rob leads me through a house that is cluttered but surprisingly clean. Visible bits of carpet are vacuumed. There's not a speck of dust. The kitchen sink is empty and spotless. A dishcloth folded perfectly in half and hung over the gleaming faucet to dry. A notebook sits on the counter and Roberta flips it open and points to a precisely written list. Most customers have a book like this where they leave special instructions. Mrs. Lane always writes something, so you need to remember to look. No special requests today, so we'll just dust, scrub, and vacuum wherever there's a space to do so. Get a move on. Your toilets are waiting. I stick my tongue out, very mature and professional. Take a breath and venture into the main bathroom. Here, there is no clutter. Spotless floor, shining toilet bowl. Not so much as a stray hair in the sink. Perfect guest towels in sunshine yellow hang precisely on the rack. Unused decorative hand soaps sit in a dish on the counter. I doubt this bathroom has ever been used, and I find myself wondering if Mrs. Lane is lonely. Reminding myself that the emotional well-being of a woman I have never met is not my problem, 
I cue up my music on my phone, turn up the volume, and start scrubbing non-existent soap scum from the bathtub to the accompaniment of the three tenors. I finished the tub and sink and am pumicing the already pristine toilet when Roberta bounces in to check on me. What is that caterwauling? She shouts to make herself heard above, oh sole mio. She grabs my phone and shuts off the music. I don't get why you insist on listening to this, or why you can't wear earbuds. I shrug, trying to unstick hair from my cheek with my shoulder. Helps me focus. Forgot to bring the earbuds. Rob likes the Beatles and the Bee Gees. Old school stuff that is easy to listen to and doesn't make you think. My tastes are weird and eclectic, and I'll listen to anything from acid rock to opera, but when I'm feeling anxious, classical is where it's at. Try something zippier, Roberta says. We're not meditating, we're working. Get a move on, we haven't got all day. I'm not Mary Poppins, I protest. Not magic. It takes time to scrub every... You don't have to scrub every surface, she says. I look up at her, Roberta in her mom jeans and oversized t-shirt, with that face that broadcasts honest and dependable as clearly as a bat signal. With a shock like the cold of a toilet swirly, a torment with which I have had way too much personal experience, I see in her eyes what she will never say out loud. Just wipe everything down with a damp cloth. Spray some air freshener around. No need to waste time doing what has already been done. Mrs. Lane will never know, and we can be out of here and on to the next house. And I'm the criminal in the family, I say, never able to keep my mouth shut. Just hurry, will you? Roberta turns and stalks away, but I don't miss the fact that she didn't ask, what are you even talking about? Which means she knows damn well, and I'm right about what she wants me to do. And I absolutely and utterly cannot do it. If my job is to scrub this bathroom, I am compelled to scrub this bathroom. Every square inch of it. I won't sleep tonight if I get paid for something I didn't do. Which just highlights how screwed up I am. When I take something that doesn't belong to me, it feels 110% right, and I sleep like a baby. But I'm incapable of the smallest dishonesties the rest of the world takes for granted. Today, I'm not taking anything, I remind myself, no matter what I see or feel or how many damn books there are in this house. I change up my mantra and run it through my head over and over and over again. Don't hurt Rob. Do my job. Stay out of jail. Everything is fine until I move on to the master bedroom. The bed is neatly made, but the room is crammed with stacks of books and magazines, games and puzzles plastic craft bins, and other random stuff. A narrow pathway winds through the clutter to the bathroom, which, unlike the guest bathroom, shows signs of frequent and recent use. Shampoo and conditioner, body wash, a can of shaving cream, and three razors compete for space in a shower caddy. A hand towel, slightly damp, hangs askew on a hook by the sink. And a shelf stuffed with paperbacks lurks next to the door, waiting to ambush me. This strikes me as manifestly unfair. There are rules. I mean, sure, keeping a reading book in the bathroom makes total sense. But a shelf crammed full of them? 
During my almost 30 years, I've relocated a wide variety of objects from one place to another, but books, above all things, are my kryptonite. Why? I don't know. But I do have a theory. Books absorb energy from readers. Energy doesn't like to stagnate. It wants to move. Ergo, books want to move. And now, on this day where I must not, no matter what, move anything other than dirt and dust, here I am up close and personal with what I most need to avoid. I deliberately turn my back on the rainbow of colors and textures created by all of those lovely spines. I will not look. I will not touch. Today I am cleaning toilets and scrubbing showers and floors and washing mirrors. I turn the music back on, then don a pair of gloves and get them wet and foamy with cleaning spray to augment my always fragile willpower. As I scrub the shower, I sing along to Ave Maria, hoping in my heart that maybe the Holy Mother really does exist and will extend some sort of mercy from heaven down to me. No such luck. The sensation of wrongness starts at the base of my spine, as it always does, creeping and crawling like a spider, tiny legs whispering upward from one vertebra to the next. I slap at it, soapy glove and doll, even though I know nothing is there, and mutter under my breath, To my job, don't hurt Rob, stay out of jail. I laser focus on my task, rinse the shower clean, squeegee the glass. By the time I move on to the sink, the spider sensation has given way to an army of ants running up and down, occasionally stopping to bite. I breathe in, the smell of bleach and chemicals crisping the hair in my nose, burning my sinuses, but that does nothing to intercept the ant parade. The sink doesn't need scrubbing, and I'm done with it all too fast. When I start on the mirror, I find myself staring at a reflection of the books. I can't read the titles, but I don't need to in order to see which book is causing the problem. There's a blur and shimmer around it, as if I'm looking at it through a heat haze. Do my job. Don't hurt Rob. Stay out of jail. But I need to dust the bookshelf, which puts me directly in the way of temptation. Holding my breath, I whisk my duster over the danger zone. Resolved to finish and get my hands safely immersed in a bucket of soapy water as rapidly as possible. The book that wants to be moved is an old paperback copy of Dante's Inferno, the binding creased and broken. Well, that's appropriate, since I'm obviously inhabiting one of the circles of hell. I allow myself to touch the spine once, ever so lightly, and when I draw back my hand, it wants to cling to my fingers like cobwebs. I rub my hands on my jeans, trying to wipe off the lingering sensation, and with an effort of willpower, I manage to pull on my gloves and start scrubbing the floor. Don't hurt Rob. Do your job. Stay out of jail. A party of enthusiastic grasshoppers takes up residence in my belly. From long experience, I know that very soon they will begin to gnaw on my stomach lining and I'll feel like I'm being eaten from the inside out all over a battered old book. If I took it with me, would Mrs. Lane even notice? And if she did notice, would she know I was the one who walked off with it? Even if she figured it out, nobody is going to send me to jail over an old book with a bent cover and dog-eared pages. You not done yet? I startle and slop a puddle of water onto the floor as Roberta pokes her head in and huffs an annoyed sigh.
You're gonna have to pick up the pace, Nickel. She shouts to be heard over my music. I already did the kitchen floor for you and started packing stuff out. Wipe up that mess and come on, this is done enough. She vanishes and I hear her footsteps on the stairs. Which means I am now alone with the enemy. As I peel off my gloves slowly, one finger at a time, I tell myself I will not touch the book. I will certainly not take the book. But even as I repeat the words over and over in my head, somehow the book is in my hands. I scan the first page, note the words, Property of Tag, scrawled inside the cover. A moment later, it's tucked into the waistband of my jeans at the small of my back, my sweatshirt tugged down to cover it. When I get downstairs, Roberta is already out the door. I put on my coat, which provides extra concealment for my contraband. Then I lug out the bucket and dump it in the snow, well away from the house. Tuck my tools into the open hatch of the car. The motor is running, the stink of exhaust sharp in the back of my throat. Thought you were going to search me, I say, sliding awkwardly into the front seat beside my sister, the book stiff as a brace on my lower back. She gives me the side eye as she backs out of the driveway. Did you steal something? Nope. It doesn't feel like a lie. It never does. She has, she calls it a sensation of wrongness. She knows something's not quite right. And I think that, uh, and then you say it creeps up her like a spider in her vertebra and it gets a little, <laughs> it was really, <laughs> but the idea of a sensation of wrongness seems very universal to me that you, everybody I think can relate to that idea that I've yeah. been somewhere and thought, oh, something doesn't feel right. So I really love the way you made that part of this magic really this component of it was an otherworldly sort of thing that's connected to right I love to build my little bits of magic out of reality so I think that it works best when you do that and so very yeah. grounded in what is a universal emotion at least I mean for me that feeling of wrongness I know that feeling I know to pay attention to it it has served me incredibly well so many times over the years to notice something something feels not good something feels wrong right. Um, I believe it saved my life a few times, so I really am grounded in that. So it made sense for me that she would have a feeling like that. The other thing in that has to do with energy. She says that she thinks that books absorb energy. Where did you get that concept of like that somehow the book itself has a form of energy to it or that they absorb the energy from the people that have read them? Like, I just like that concept. I like that concept too. I kind of... I kind of have a sense that some objects do have energy. There are things that you feel like you don't want in your house. <laughs> it's like yeah. nothing really wrong with them, but they just, eh, they got that feeling. And I feel like with books, we are so um, open when we're reading. There's oh. this sort of communion between the reader and the words where we're not guarded, where we are being fully and completely um, absorbed into this world that we're reading. And I like yes. to think of it as a flow of energy that goes both ways. So it just seemed to me that of all of the objects in the world that would have energy, books would totally be it. That's so true. You're right. That, that's, 
that books themselves are sort of woven into those magical elements of stories. Oh, absolutely. And, they're but, and not just magical elements. I mean, let's talk about something like the Bible. We consider, you know, so many people will consider that this is a holy item, that it must never have anything set on top of it, that it must be treated with respect. You know, there's there's all these things that we have woven over the years into many, many different kinds of books. And sure, you want to talk about a, a holy religious book that may seem different to some. And yet, to me, all books are a little sacred. Um, so yeah. it's just, it, it made sense to me that for me, that wasn't even a stretch. Yes. So I just want then so people should know that the reason we're talking about the book is that it is a book that she moves that is the real catalyst for this particular moment in time in her life that sends her on a journey that intersects her with all of these other uh, characters and people who are solving problems in their lives. And, and you come to a nice resolution. It's not a fairy tale. There was a point in the story where I was like, oh, wait, is this going to be the coincidence? And it was just going to be too much of a stretch. Right. But you didn't do that. You didn't nope. take like this <laughs> obvious thing. I wanted readers to think I was going to do that and be surprised though. You so. did. Yeah. You got me. You totally got me because I was like, wait, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, you don't, you don't jump into full submerged magic story, fairy tale perfect bow at the end Disney princess connection, you know, no. is you keep it in a realm of this could be possible, right? That could actually happen. I, I was that. aiming for that. You know, really, I don't know that I realized this at the time I was doing it, but <laughs> now that we're talking about it, it's kind of is it's a hero's journey story, really. Um, and but it's in the real world and not in a fantasy. So I've taken my favorite fantasy arc of a character who is presented with a quest, so to speak, right. which is the book, and it, that launches them into a, a world of things that they don't quite know what to do with and a gift that they have that has a little bit of a magical element to it, maybe that they don't know how to control. And then the question becoming, will my character find a way to control and use her power for good? Yes. And so really, it is kind of that same old arc that I yes. do just really love in the fantasy books that I read. Yeah. So the podcast is called Desideratum, which is a Latin word that means essential things. And when I was growing up, there was a poem called Desiderata. It was, it's not a rhymey poem. It is really a list of things that are essential if you were going to share with someone what you should value, what you should strive for. And when I was thinking about doing a podcast, I felt like connecting with storytellers and understanding better how they come to their craft and their storytelling and sort of opening up their books in a way and trying to connect was to me felt very essential. So that's where it comes from. So I like then to ask authors that join me, for you, what are the essential things? What is most essential to you? Essential to me. You know, it's funny because a lot of it is the same themes as tend to come out in my book. So following your own path, being your own self. But that whole thing of, you know, we're here as this unique person 
Um, nobody else can be you or see the world in the way that you do or do the things that you can do because you are the only one who is you. So being really true to that and following where that leads me, that is really um, top of the line importance for me. And then I pursue joy. I think we're here to be happy. I don't know that we need to be miserable. I mean, things are not always easy, but right. I'm always going to find the happiest place I can be in and anywhere that I am. I like to do things to uplift and inspire others. Those, those are my probably top three. Freedom, self-determination, those are really, really up there too. Yes, those are great answers. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has just been absolutely delightful. Yeah. I'm really glad to have gotten a chance to just spend more time talking to you. Yeah. You have a great voice as an author, but it's always interesting how the real person is, a, is different and yet the same. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know? I hear you. It's a funny thing to get to know authors on a, just a little different level. So right. I appreciate it. You can find Carrie's books from both her Carrie Schaefer and her Carrie Ann King pen names on her website, allthingscarrie.com. It's Carrie with a K. I'll put a link in the show notes, as well as a link to the Audiophile magazine profile on narrator Terry Clark Linden. A special thank you to Annie McDonald of The Right Review for inviting me to participate in the launch party for this book. Annie has a gift for bringing people together. Thanks for listening to the Desideratum Podcast. <laughs>